Welcome to Transforming Medical Communications, a podcast by MedCom's experts. We share medical communications insights and advice from the best and brightest in the industry to find out what they're doing to push our industry forward. Here's your host, Wesley Portages. Welcome to the Transforming Medical Communications podcast. I'm Wesley Portuguese, your host, and joining me today is a distinguished guest, Audrey Carnival. She's a medical communications lead at Averitas Pharma, and Audrey's expertise is built on a solid foundation in neuroscience, which she parasites with an exceptional grasp of the principles of effective communications. Her approach is unique, blending storytelling and the creation of engaging narratives to complement the hard facts, figures, and technical jargon often found in medical communications. In today's episode, we'll delve into her techniques and explore how she crafts these impactful communications. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. It's great to be here with you today, Wesley, to talk about something I'm really passionate about and one of our favorite topics for discussion. I am glad we can bring our usual inspiring conversations to the podcast channel today. So thank you for being here. Let's maybe start with an opening question here, which is you have made a journey from neuroscience to medical communications. And I wanted to ask you if you could maybe walk us through your professional journey and how you ultimately came to choose for medical communications. Of course. So my background as a neuroscientist is academic based. So I started as a researcher, academic institution studying the neuromechanisms underlying substance use disorders translated into chronic pain. So that kind of took me on this journey of understanding a chronic disease state as well as motivation from a preclinical and clinical standpoint. After leaving the academic world, heading over to industry, it was really wonderful to go kind of the more bench to bedside approach, really seeing how HCPs are motivated in the field, how we work as professional biologists to practice the art of medicine. And that's always been passion of mine. I think knowledge is power, understanding the science of how we work and how we make decisions and how that really influences our everyday choices led me to some really interesting companies and adventures as a medical science liaison. Having the ability to communicate with professionals and learn from each other is really engaging and something I'm very passionate about. So when I joined the latest company I'm with, I had a really unique opportunity to work on the, alongside with the marketing team to understand more of brand development and how to take those scientific tidbits of information from our clinical trials and the mechanism of action that can seem a little daunting and complex at first and turn it into something that's really tangible for the audience that they can grab onto to help them really differentiate and understand the patients that we're able to treat and our target audience. So working with the marketing team was very challenging. It was very different for me to kind of step outside my my medical bubble. I challenged myself in a new way to understand messaging and and how our field team thinks in addition to how our clients think and all of our internal and external stakeholders. So with that molded creativity that I was able to pursue, I headed back to the medical team to lead communication. So it's I would say the best of both worlds in a sense where I can take that creativity and my love of science and really put them together to help our audiences really understand different pathophysiology of disease state as well as different products and their novel mechanism of action. That's a nice story and quite rare actually to be both on the medical side and having been on the commercial side of things. question that immediately pops up in my mind is what from the commercial side 
did you learn that you feel is also effective and applicable in the medical affairs side of things? I'm really fascinated by our commercial team, boots on the ground, out there every day, understanding their audience. They walk into a clinic and they immediately are able to kind of read the room and understand how to engage and triage their conversation based on the needs and that particular time and day. And we have a a unique space in a sense where we're working with multiple different specialties. So our HCPs that we engage with have different backgrounds, different patients. So we really have to be flexible in our approach and understand the lexicon they're using, understand the different challenges they may be facing. And our field team does a fantastic job of understanding the audience in that direction and then triaging the conversation. It's really nice to kind of see them do that live in action and then how I can support the marketing and even now today, the medical side to give them those materials to keep supporting those conversations so they can continue to educate on the forefront and they have tidbits of information that they can share in a small condensed time. They don't always have those lengthy conversations like our medical team is able to do. So it's nice to kind of see both sides of that story. Very nice. I was also wondering, as you you have a background in neuroscience, did this in any way impact your your way of thinking about medical communications, and especially when it comes to crafting compelling stories that resonate with HEBs? I would say yes. As a neuroscientist, I'm always looking for the data to support the emotional connection. So it might be a little bit of a twist and not the straightest path for to answer your question, but I would say... I'm so passionate about understanding what motivates people and how we make these connections. And so when I started to introduce the idea of focusing more on storytelling in our everyday conversations, I knew I'd have to get buy-in by relying on the data to support it. So I found some articles that looked at the fMRI imaging, the speaker and the listener, and how the neural coupling can really change when we're told a story versus just a list of facts and data. So it is, for me, very interesting to understand that during just a conventional communication, there's two parts of the cerebral cortex that are linked to speech that are activated into decoding words and to meaning. But when we're told a story, other areas of the brain are actually used to experience the events as they're being told. And so not only are different areas of the brain connected and activated, it's a stronger connection when you're thinking about how this relates and how it's important to you and what that true meaning is behind the story you're being told. And so with that, you have different neurotransmitters and hormones that are being released to really embed that story now in your memory. So you're able to to recall it in a couple months or even years. And I think that's just how we naturally learn. So I had to dig through, find some scientific articles and, and start with that presentation when we introduce storytelling to the team. Yeah. I know that you uh, that you know that you're kind of preaching to the choir here, right? I'm also a big fan of storytelling, but sometimes when I speak with clients or other people at conferences about storytelling, you know, they frown a little bit and look at me and say, like, "Well, that doesn't sound like proper science," as if it would impact the uh, the scientific integrity of what we communicate. What is your feel on that? Yeah, it's interesting because when you say storytelling, I think people automatically think tall tales or this fairy tale that we're so used to where we're sitting by the fire and we're hearing stories from our family or or things that, you know, might have been embellished along the way or people are putting their own twist and turn to it. 
But if you boil it down, it's really the path up the same mountain. You you have a meet a story has the same flow, and you have kind of a goal for what you want to portray to your audience. And so, scientific storytelling is an adventure with your audience. You want to set the landscape. You want to understand the problem and how the data that you have for that product, for that pathophysiology, or whatever you're trying to communicate can support that story. And so it's not that we're changing the data, we're embellishing the data, the data, the science is there to support the story along the way. It's just how you weave those integral facts together in the data is really, I believe, what makes a story so unique and so nice to tell because you're you're really relating to your audience in that sense. From what I hear you say, like an analogy would be that you give the same gift, but you wrap it in a different paper that makes it more appealing. I think, and I don't know if you'd agree, but there's been a shift. And I think we need to change the way we're communicating with our peers. You know, we're still used to these lectures and it's great because you have to know the facts and the data, but we can also just go and read the publication. When you're talking to someone, you want to have that human connection so that they not only remember you, but they remember the information that they were given. Yeah. In the the previous McKinsey white paper on uh, medical affairs uh, fish in 2025, I think it was, they said that 81% of HCP is unsatisfied or dissatisfied with the information provided by pharma because they it has a lack of relevance and isn't really personalized. And I strongly feel that this is related to that. And also recently, I think it's probably two episodes ago of the same podcast channel, I interviewed uh, Dr. Proven, who is a QL, and I asked him some questions about this as well. And he also said like, well, you know, sometimes when someone comes by, MSL comes by and starts diving into the data, but I kind of don't know what is the so what? Why is this important? It would be nice to first understand why this is actually important, because I will be more focused on the information if I understand this is actually how this impact me, how it impacts my patients. And I think storytelling is a great instrument to do that because it uses the, well, as you said, like the, you know, the psychology behind providing or uh, receiving information, right? And you were talking about like the didactic lecture as well, the traditional classic didactic lecture. Do you feel storytelling is only applicable in a, like a field medical setting, for instance, or how about storytelling in applied to I don't know, like online content or a slide deck that someone would consume on their own. Yeah, I think just even engaging is, as I read something, I always start, my mind starts to wander and I start to relate it to either events that I previously experienced or something that I'm curious about. And then all of a sudden I'm Googling something else and I'm researching it. So we're always, I feel like building our own stories too. But I would say that when you put together content, you do want to make sure that the points that you're trying to get across are the ones that the audience is going to piece together. So with the story being in the eye of the presenter, we just want to make sure that the story our audience is creating in their own mind, if we're not telling it in the way that we intend them to put pieces of the puzzle together, they may miss or misconstrue or misinterpret that so what point that you are so desperately wanting to get across because you feel like that's the aha moment of the whole story. That's why you're there. That's why they're reading your PowerPoint or your infographic. You want to make sure that even if they step away or miss one or two points, they still really understand that meaning. And so we were so used to those PowerPoint presentations made up of bullet points and 
bullets can kill the presentation, unfortunately. Sometimes you can't avoid them, but the way you present, even if you're animated, we want to make sure that we are connecting with the audience. So I would say never miss that chance of really setting the landscape, understanding the problem and how your data or your story can solve the current problem for your audience, because that's really satisfying for them to actually know that you're connecting on that level and what you're presenting is resolving a conflict that they're experiencing. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of slide decks coming across my desk too, right? And I was looking at some of them recently and logically we often end with the conclusions, right? And I was kind of wondering, like, should we start with it? Like, is the conclusion the thing that is going to actually make someone curious about what is behind that conclusion? And the other thing that that is something that I always recommend is to use titles that kind of indicate something already. So every title of every slide should be a conclusion too, rather than a descriptive. So for instance, if you have a slide that says summary, and then you have a summary, well, everyone understands that as a summary, right? But you would better put a title in that maybe gives the one high level conclusion of the slide already right away. And of course, storytelling is much more than that. Just a few thoughts that came up when you were talking about this. Now, of course, if you want to create captivating stories and, and use scientific storytelling, you really need to understand your audience. How can we see things from our audience's perspective? And how would that impact the way we communicate? Yeah, I thought about this since the last time we spoke is just what understanding your audience really means. And I think with an academic background or what we're used to in, in the medical field and medical affairs is just coming into your audience and saying, here's their specialty, this is their training, this is probably their knowledge level. And so I'm going to enter the conversation on the same page as them so we can really like, hit the ground running with the conversation. That's probably traditionally how I thought about understanding my audience, but now I think about it in a little bit of a different light. I would say, I want to understand, of course, their background and their knowledge of. I don't want to enter a conversation using acronyms and, and verbiage that they may not be familiar with, because unfortunately, the conversation's just not going to be as successful if they're lost from the start. So what is the current problem they're experiencing? And how can my story change so the data that I'm presenting actually solves that problem? Getting to know your audience, especially if it's a little bit of a smaller setting, asking those questions as to how is the landscape changed from the last time we spoke. What's the same? Are there any differences? And really letting them kind of participate and be an active partner in the story. And as you're having that conversation, really you build it together. So then your those areas in your brain are kind of connected. You're both kind of engaging back and forth. And it's not that you're just asking them questions, like open-ended questions. You're really wanting to know what their current day is. You know, is that maybe that something happened just that morning and it's really affecting the rest of their day and the rest of their week, or they had a really complicated patient that they, they're not quite used to seeing. And just having that conversation about it, even though you feel like, oh, I just really want to share this new data with them. I really want to get the perspective on this. I want to make sure that we cover bullet points X, Y, and Z today so I can gather insights or observations from them. I think if we kind of slow down and, and we take the time to connect on that more personal level, we understand our audience quite a bit more. Mm, yeah, that makes total sense. And I think we're quite literal thinkers often, right? And we ask questions because of we want to collect information, right? Well, questions are, I think, also very useful in a different way. It makes other people curious too. And it's almost impossible to not 
think about an answer when you get a question involuntarily. So I think it's a very powerful tool. And I think you're right. I think often we walk into that office with too much of a mindset where we need to broadcast what we have and we feel the pressure of having maybe 15 or 20 minutes to do so while actually first figuring out what is needed is probably the most important thing to do. Yeah, and I would say a lot of times we think, okay, and our peers that are in the clinic or they're the ones writing the guidelines and they've or they're doing the research, so they're the experts and we want to make sure that we enter that conversation on that same level. Sometimes I think if we take a step back and we don't want to assume our audience already fully understands and appreciates the problem because we live and breathe it every day. We are studying, we're reading, and we're building digital content that we hope is consumed in the right way. We're having conversations that we want to make sure are impactful. I think taking a step back and just doing a little bit of, not a temperature check, but maybe a little bit of one just to really go over some of the recent data. Or if you are so excited and say, oh, this receptor, it activates this receptor and the HCPs say, oh, okay. But you didn't take the time to say why that receptor is important in the pathophysiology and targeting it could be a potential therapeutic option, even that if it sounds so simple, it never hurts to just kind of review that information, not to oversimplify, but just to make sure that you're you're setting that landscape. So when you're moving to the next chapter of that story, you're both moving together. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I hear you say is like you need to provide some context and that helps because you might be bothered a little bit by what I call the curse of knowledge, right? Like we're very deep into this material. And for us, it's our world and our work. So we know everything in detail. And then we may assume that that is true for the people we're talking with too. But for them, we're just a small part of their their overall life. Let's get a little bit more concrete here. Let's say if you would need to structure some kind of presentation and let's say you have some trial data you want to communicate, it's all pretty dry. Like how would you apply storytelling? But I would say the secret sauce of storytelling is having that concrete structure, but allowing the flow to be a little bit more like malleable and, and being able to be flexible with that storytelling. And so when we introduce this concept to some of our medical team, they do a wonderful job at communicating our data. But you're right, it can be dry. It's um, values. And unless you're talking to a statistician, sometimes it's not as engaging as we would hope. But taking a moment to always pause and saying, why did we study this? What is the current challenge that we're facing just in the environment at the time? If, for example, if your data is maybe a little bit old, maybe 2015, and but you're trying to revisit it, set the stage. What was the current landscape in 2015 when that study was performed? What question was it trying to answer at that point? And is that still a question today? Just really building that for yourself, I think will always help because then when you come to the main endpoint in an efficacy study, it's kind of, oh, okay, yes, you're right. So we had this challenge. This is why the study was designed the way it was, but you don't have to go through all of the inclusion exclusion criteria. Of course, you want to be compliant with your presentation and be fair balanced. But I think having there's that balance and like data dumping, as we, we sometimes say, and then just providing a key relevant point on that slide too. The slides are there to support you. They're the visuals, but it's that connection and communication that you're setting that stage. You're revisiting some points you had on previous slides or previous engagements 
so that there, because you can't assume your audience is also going to remember everything you, you spoke about even five minutes ago. So if they were to look at that slide, they see the key takeaway point and you're there really filling in those gaps. And we don't have to cover every data point. We can cover the main ones and let the audience engage and ask those questions. And then we know we have additional data points to support or we can continue on to the next chapter or leave it for a later engagement. So I'd say in addition to really understanding that problem in the environment, also to following what I like to call learning our ABTs, that in, but, therefore. Keeping it very concise and that consolidated story versus our scientific poster presentations when we were in graduate school that had the, the and, and, and methodology. So I would say sticking with a more consolidated approach, it, it's nice. You know, the audience gets a break. They get to digest versus you already moving on to the next 27 secondary endpoints at that point. Yeah. So this is intriguing. You were talking about ABT. Can you tell a bit more about that? Yeah. So I learned about this a conference last year, and I didn't realize how much we utilize the ABT methodology in everyday life. Books, TV shows, newsletters. Once I started to engage with it a little bit more, it made so much sense. So you want to always set the landscape for the problem, which is our and. We administered a new drug to patients with chronic pain and observed initial improvements in pain management. So there's a problem that we wanted to try to solve. The but really creates that tension. But subsequently, we identified potential side effects, which needed further investigation. Your audience is kind of saying, oh, okay, I knew there was a problem. There's some tension. How are we going to resolve this? Therefore, our ongoing clinical trials aim to refine the treatment protocol to ensure safety and efficacy. Okay, so now they're collecting more data to try to resolve the tension that they discovered from the problem. And so it's kind of following this almost climactic approach where you have the the tension, it's rising, and then you want to provide a resolution. It sounds probably simple, and it is, but it's really satisfying. You want to hear the end of the story. I don't know if you are. I'm not a huge fan of movies that just kind of die off and don't have an ending. So I think that's how... We, we communicate as well and it resonates and it's tangible for the audience. They take it away. They can differentiate because they remember those feelings that were associated with that story as well. And we say story, but it's just that that conversation really or kind of that, that data communication or exchange. I really like this. It's super practical and kind of easy to use. So anyone that would want to get started with applying some storytelling could use this ABT method. Yeah, so I think... One point I struggle with is as scientists, we love data and we're, we want our HCP, we feel like we need to support the conversation by saying, here's all of our data. You should believe in X, Y, and Z. You sh- this should help you make decisions for therapeutic approaches. But I guess traditionally, as we always say, less is more. We're so used to in science, I had a question and I did an experiment and here's the methodology and here are the results and here's the data, here's the graph, here's a secondary endpoint, here's a discussion, and then I'm done. And you're like, oh my gosh, that was so much. And it truly is. But in our minds, sometimes we think, oh, the HCPs must love this. Look at all the data we have. Or the HCP is like, I am so lost. I don't remember the first part of the conversation. Yeah, I think this is where we refer back to what you said about asking questions. Ultimately... Do we want to come in and 
exhaustively communicate everything? Or do we actually want to understand what the doctor wants to know? Like, what is the number one thing they need to know? And maybe create like an ABT story around that that would, of course, be extremely powerful. So I can see how the combination of these things is really could have magical impact, especially knowing that like almost 70% of HEPs indicate they're overwhelmed with information. So that means that everyone is kind of in this scanning mode and no one is really paying deep attention to anything unless you somehow know how to spark their curiosity, right? And that is kind of what you're doing with this ABT. So I really like that. You said earlier that you did some kind of internal storytelling training for your, I guess, for your field medical team. Yes, we did. We had a a meeting and we introduced the storytelling concept for explaining our data and supporting conversations in the field. So how was this received? Like, did you feel this concept was embraced or was there maybe a little bit of reluctance? You know, how did that go? I must start by saying I get a lot of feedback that I can be very creative and sometimes (laughs) when I was in academia, reining in and focusing my creativity was probably the biggest challenge for me because I wanted to do and explore everything under the sun. And so coming into the storytelling workshop with the creative bug and, and excitement was so fun for me. But I had to take a step back and realize that's not always fun for everyone. So I think it, it stressed out the field team a little bit at the beginning because they're like, oh gosh, we should have studied. I didn't realize we were going to dive through some of our clinical trial data from a couple of years ago. And, and they know that I'm like, you guys know the data. You do this every day. We're just picking the pieces apart and putting them together in a different order. And we're taking the top line summaries of of really how we can communicate with our audience, pull through the relevant points, but never forget that so what. And so it took a little time and they started to really implement it. But it took some massaging, a couple of sweat. We had to sweat through it and we we got there. But I think it just takes some of the field team members out of their comfort zone. They really rely on the slides to support the conversation, to lead it, I, I guess I should say because they want to cover those bullet points. They want to cover all the data on the slide. Whereas we didn't let them use slides. They had to just verbally present and follow along with the ABT method. And they liked the example and they were very flexible. And I think it's slowly starting to integrate into their everyday conversation. That's a great effort. And I think also very brave to start implementing this. And I can just see how this is difficult for where we come from. And it's kind of a new skill to be learned, but one that could really change the way how specifically MSLs, how they are perceived. And there's a lot of data that, you know, when you ask HEPs around the importance of MSLs, the data is often a little bit disappointing. While MSLs are so smart, right? Like have all this knowledge, they're deeply trained. And personally, I'm a big believer that actually the way how we communicate is the part where kind of the lacking part of the puzzle right now. And if we change that, that these ratings would also change tremendously. So I think another important understanding your audience fact as well, or something to consider, I should say, is just setting the scene when you you walk in or you have that engagement. So sometimes we walk in, hi, I'm your MSL, and your audience might not know what that is. They Do you sell the product? Are are you the reimbursement person? Like, who are you? And they don't want to say that. We're natural humans. They don't want to offend each other. So I think even walking in and just saying, oh, the medical science liaison, maybe you remember me from this Congress or it's the first time meeting you. I wanted to share 
X, Y, and Z with you today. Just that super simple introduction. It might sound so silly and we might always think we do it. And some, that's the hard thing. You, you, people are say, oh yeah, no, I introduced myself, but you walk in, you're all excited. You have the energy. And then before you know it, you're on a different level of the conversation. And so I think just taking a step back of you're their peer, you're there to educate or you're there to share information and data and our latest, get some insights and feedback and understand where the HCP is at that point and their current challenges and landscape. So always just kind of starting off too. That's the hardest thing. You have that those few seconds to make that impression and you don't want the HCP, the whole conversation to be like, who are they again? Like, where are they uh-huh. from? Why are they here today? So just super simple, but I wanted to build off that. <laughs> I think that's a very good point. And I think actually a lot of HCPs might not, in the beginning, not know what the difference even is between an MSL and a sales rep. And that could impact your conversation quite a bit. And I've personally been speaking with some that where I asked, because I'm always asking questions. I'm a curious person. I always want to learn more about what happens in our industry and how HCPs consume information and so on. So I did actually ask that question once in a while. And it you know, it has happened that someone said like, oh, you mean the rep? It's like, well, do you mean like the person who's selling? Yeah. It's like, no, I mean the MSL. It's like, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and so that exists. So I think it's very important indeed to not make assumptions and always be clear, provide context. What would you say like if an organization, let's say someone here is listening and is kind of excited about this concept and it's like, okay, I want to implement this in my organization. Where should they start? My goal holistically is always for HCPs or any audience to feel comfortable after a conversation relaying the information to someone else. They don't have to do it perfectly, but if they can't explain to their patients why they should try this or why it's an option, they're not going to recommend it. Or if they are asking their peers if they've used it before, they still want to understand the product or the pathophysiology and the intricacies of it at a minimum. And so I think just really making the relevant points come across in any of our materials. So whether it's our our slide decks right now, we are starting to implement new slide decks or we have that core story. So those high level key takeaway points that you can always speak to. And then it's almost build your own journey with the HCP. So everything's reactive for our medical team, but they're asking you questions and you can expand upon that topic if they're interested. So then you can really kind of build that relationship based on reciprocity, which I think is so important. But yeah, with our Congress plans and our publication strategy, we want to make sure we're bridging the gap from a medical perspective. That's really going to shift the mindset. Our commercial team has their own tasks. Our marketing team has their own tasks. But how can we support that organization on multiple levels? We have limited time to do that too with our time-strapped world we live in. What are the best strategies and approaches? I think that needs analysis and that assessment for what those big questions are and what's going to really move the needle for you and your medical team is something to consider. And then you can kind of fill in with the key tactics and points that support that long-term planning. Yeah, so you're kind of saying create something maybe analog to an SCP or take a more storytelling approach to an SCP so that can form the core of all communications. But then how could people develop this skill, right? And I'm thinking more from a, like a leadership perspective. Like if you would be running uh, field medical or medcoms in an organization, like how could you implement this in your organization to be adopted by the team? 
I don't know if I've been successful at it yet, but I keep pushing for it. (laughs) I always start with the data. This is what good looks like. Here's how we measured it. Here is what the success rate of this project was to really pull it through. So with our ABT storytelling, we have implemented it in our scientific platform. We have used it to fill out our publication plans because it is a story. We are the artists of that product, that product story. How can we continue to educate with the data we have? What data do we need? I guess that might not be buy-in from the other team, but we all connect the stories and they're telling stories every day. I think it's just really unlocking the understanding of it. So to really start with, I'll train the field team on some of their slide decks and I'll stop and say, why is this slide important? And they'll say, oh, because the data points or the product's effective. Great. You're completely right. But why is this important to the HCP you're speaking with right now? Or why is this important to the payer team or whatever it shall be? So to kind of like really start to weave it in in every aspect I can has been a really nice opportunity. And I train a lot of the new hires that are coming on and I really want them to feel confident with what they're doing. And I think when that confidence comes through, it's just more of like a natural progression to pull through that storytelling. I think we naturally do it, but we just haven't really put a label on it. And it's a little bit more of a shift for the medical team because they're, you know, they get called in through a big meeting. They want to share all the data we have and pulling back, I think is probably the hardest thing because you never want to leave a conversation feeling like you didn't say enough, but like I'm doing now, I'm sure I've said plenty, you know, <laughs> we just, we just want to like be mindful. I don't know if you have any ideas on that. Cause I feel like we do it naturally. We just maybe have it put that label on it and measured it and how we're doing it successfully. Yeah. So my thought is that in medical affairs in general, I guess one of the biggest uh, tasks that we have is to communicate, right? To communicate to our audience. So we have data, you can have the most fantastic data, but as long as we don't communicate it, it could as well not even exist. That is our main task, communicate this to the outside world. And we're talking here about like how to communicate this as effectively as possible, right? And make it more captivating and engaging for the audience so they can actually recall it better, so they can use it better, hopefully, in their clinical decision making. My thinking is that, of course, by nature, most of the people in medical affairs are scientifically trained and there's nothing wrong with that. But like even people within medical communications, right, we didn't get much like communications training, like formal communications training. So I think this needs to be like a newly acquired skill where we augment like that fantastic and brilliant scientific knowledge that everyone has with some more communications skills. And if you look at the, you know, if you go online and search for like MSL skills or these kind of things, you will see that like number one is always like the scientific knowledge, but then two, three and so on. It's all soft skills. It's all about emotional intelligence, the ability to clearly communicate. And these are the things we're not trained on necessarily. So I think generally that is something that kind of needs to happen. If our task is to communicate, then we should get some more training on how to communicate. This is why I'm really inspired by the effort you did and you created this this workshop. And I think something like that, like relatively simple, is extremely effective because I think we just need to get used to practicing this. And like with any new skill, it just is a bit uncomfortable in the beginning. It takes you out of your comfort zone. But once you have it under control, once you can do it and you start using it in the, in real life, it becomes comfortable quite quickly. 
Yeah, we bring up some really nice points. We've worked with a company to help with presentation skills as part of our onboarding, and we do it yearly with our field team. And now we've seen so much more confidence grow because when COVID happened and the pandemic really shifted things overnight, we didn't really have the Zoom etiquette or how to really engage in a virtual setting and keep it engaging with our audience. So we took some classes on how to just read your audience through a computer, which is very tough. I don't think anyone figured that out quite yet. It's so different from in-person conversations and communications, but we've seen some really nice successes and the MSLs really loved the training. So it kind of trickled through the organization and now our field team participates. So it is part of our national meetings where we do have presentation skills and understanding emotional intelligence and how to read your audience on that level and engage just outside of the data of the messaging of the product safety information, you know, just to really have the reciprocity there. I think you build the trust and you want your audience to ask you questions. And so it's so nice when you just have those advocates who are reaching out to you and they want to learn from you. It's it's a really great feeling. So we, we try to push for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe as a last question for you, Audrey, what is your outlook on this topic within our industry? If we would have this discussion again in five years from now, what do you think has changed and why and how? So hopefully AI will not made us all obsolete at that point, but I do, some of our MSLs did use AI to generate their stories during the, the storytelling workshop and we could pick out those ones. It's very funny because you, you wanted that interaction and that feedback from your audience, which I don't think we have mastered quite yet. But I think This is how we're moving forward. Time is, of course, of the essence. People want those connections and they want to feel confident in their decision-making skills. We want to differentiate ourselves. We want to be remembered. And that's just kind of not within medical affairs. I think that's more human nature too, just really pulling through. And so I think storytelling in medical affairs and outside of the organization an industry is going to continue to grow. I mean, when you present your dissertation, you're telling a story about the five years of the data you collected. It is very data heavy, but if your audience doesn't understand why you did all this bench work, it's not going to be as impactful. And I think we're seeing this, that our TED Talks, our, our four-minute presentations that pull through so much information is so impactful versus that 40-minute lecture and conversation. As much as I'd say I'd love to have more time, I don't think we're moving in that direction. I think we're moving away from it. We have to be innovative and creative. And the more creativity we have, the better the outcome is going to be. And the data is the data, but how can we really differentiate ourselves? Yeah, I really like that. The, you know, the mention of creativity within medical affairs, I think, is a very powerful statement because it feels a little bit like water and oil, right? It doesn't necessarily mix But if we do it in the right way and in a very compliant way, then it could add so much value to everyone, including the the people we care most about, uh, you know, where the patients and the HCPs that need this information to bring their best selves and hopefully to regain their lives where possible. Yeah, and I will say as a closing thought that kind of being out there and having these conversations, it's hard to do. It's hard to really make sure that you remember all these little tidbits of information, you want to make an impact. So I think there is pressure to always have a really robust conversation. 
having the key points that you want to communicate and then allowing your audience to kind of fill in the rest, it's going to make it successful. It's just a small piece of advice is like a starting point. And I will say our MSLs when we introduced storytelling said, oh, so it's going to be scripted or now it's going to be your story to tell. But there's that core concept that we all have agreed upon as our medical affairs strategy because we are in a very fortunate position to be thought after as having a seat at the strategic table. Medical affairs is really an important part of the organization and, and we will help weave that story together. So I think it's nice to kind of pull that through to the field team as well. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Thank you. Well, it was fantastic to have this discussion with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge with, uh, with our audience. It's really appreciated. Let's keep telling stories together. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to have this conversation. I could talk about it all day, so we'll have to continue. <laughs> Thanks, Rosary. Transforming Medical Communications is brought to you by MedComs Experts. To find out more about MedComs Experts and how we create some of the most cutting edge medical communications programs anywhere in the world, visit www.medcoms-experts.com. And then make sure to search for Transforming Medical Communications in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at MedComs Experts, thanks for listening.